All right. Uh, I'll call your attention to John chapter 7. The very last verse of chapter 7, which is actually under the heading of chapter 8. Through 8.11, if you'll follow along with me. This is, at the, this is at the end of the Feast of Booths. And on the last day of the feast, when it was over, it says in verse 53, they, each, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this this passage of Scripture that is given to us. We pray this morning that uh, you will uh, be our guide, be our teacher, as we open open up the pages of your Word to this story, which is so familiar to all of us. And so I pray that you would teach us from it and cause us, cause our hearts to be surrendered more to you, drawn to you, that we might walk with you and please you and glorify you in life. We pray that you would receive our worship this morning through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago, we skipped over this portion of Scripture. Uh, that is really a very beloved story by, by most. Uh, it is a tender, encouraging story in the life of Christ. Found in John seven fifty three through eight eleven. this portion of Scripture has been labeled as unauthentic for several reasons. I'll give them to you quickly. If you have the notes, you have them listed. First of all, the placement of the story disrupts the flow of the text concerning Christ at the Feast of Booths. And it certainly does that. It almost seems out of place that it would, you, would, you would go from 
752, uh, and they, the Pharisees were replying to him. And then chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. So it seems like that this story is placed in an uh, unforeseen or unimportune place in the Scriptures. Some of the Greek manuscripts uh, insert the story in different places. For example, one manuscript has it placed in uh, after Luke 21, verse 38, which speaks uh, more of the Passion Week than it does of this text or this Feast of Booths. Number three, the, the text has a different style than John's normal style of writing. And so that for that reason, many say it is not authoritative. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that Jesus spent the night on the Mount of Olives, but Luke records that happening only during the Passion Week. Now, it is possible that Jesus could have spent the night on the Mount of Olives in other, at other times that we don't have recorded by Luke. Uh, but that gives way for some to say that this this is placed in the wrong in the wrong place in scripture this particular story is omitted in many of the earliest and most reliable greek manuscripts and there is no comment on the passage from any of the early church fathers and so they they did not see it as authoritative either some in the early church cut the passage out because they felt it was too lenient on adultery. But if that, would be, if that were the case, then why did those same people who, who they say cut this out, why did they leave the story of the woman at the well who was also involved in adultery? So these are all reasons that, that many have said this is an unauthentic portion of Scripture. Sum it all up. The story was most likely an oral story that, that was passed down from one person to the next until finally it made its way into the text of Scripture. It describes a historical event in the Lord's life. Its, its teaching does not contradict any other portion of Scripture. And it is a beautiful portrayal of Jesus' wisdom his compassion, and his forgiveness. So whether it fits some other place or whether it was later adopted uh, and, and placed in Scripture, is, it is impossible to know. But it should be handled like any of the other narratives of Jesus' life, of the life of Christ. And so it is a story of an adulteress it is a story of the hypocritical church or religious leaders, not church leaders, but religious leaders. But most of all, it is a story of the Lord Jesus, his meekness, his wisdom, his incrimination of sin, and his grace of forgiveness. And those are the things we want to look at in the story this morning. So let's start with the meekness of Jesus in this story as we see it. He says each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he went to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. 
Now, we don't know where exactly this story fits into the life of Christ, but we do know that it was typical of Jesus to go to the temple and teach the people that were there. It would seem that it is possible that this event took place during the Passion Week. Uh, Because it closely aligns with Luke chapter 21, verse 37, 38. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him teach. And so it seems as Luke has the right formula for this teaching time that Jesus did. He went to the temple every day and taught them. You have to remember that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He had no house. He had no possessions. He was he had no real permanent home. Even foxes had better than him. They had dens to go to. He had nowhere to lay his head. But this was part of his humiliation. He came to earth humiliated, having taken upon himself human form, becoming a man, made made lower than the angels that he himself created. And so the... The humiliation of Christ is found in that he had no earthly possessions. He had no place to go. He had no possessions to call his own. He didn't even have a bed to lay down in at night. He was was a slave carrying out his father's will. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He says this, But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now that word servant is literally the word slave. A bond slave. That's the form he took. You see, we were all bond slaves. We were all slaves. In fact, we're still slaves. We were slaves, first of all, to sin. Because we were born in sin, and sin was all we could do, and it was our master, and we obeyed its every wish. Until Christ came along and redeemed us and saved us, and then we became his slave. A slave of righteousness, as Paul says in chapter 6 of Romans. Verse 8 of Philippians 2 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. This was part of how he humbled himself. This is how he showed his meekness. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was born in a a cave or or a stable, wrapped in strips of rags. And throughout his earthly life, he was hated and rejected as if he were a leper. And he didn't even know where he would lay his head each night that came to be. So he went to the Mount of Olives, and the next morning, whenever this was, the next morning we see him at the temple teaching to those who had gathered 
to hear his words. Now the scripture says, all the people came to him. Be careful with the word all. Because it throws a lot of people in lots of places in the scripture. Because all doesn't always mean all. Does this mean that every man, woman, and child in the city of Jerusalem came to the temple to hear Jesus teach? Certainly it does not mean that because you couldn't get all the people in Jerusalem in the temple to hear him preach. Here, it means all kinds of people came. Men, women, children, workers, noblemen, different kinds of people came to the temple to hear him teach. This was the style of the rabbis, to go to the temple to sit and gather his disciples around him, and he would teach them. So Jesus, it says, sat down and taught. This speaks of his humility. He humbled himself, sitting down to his people and teaching them, or to those, at least to those who would listen to him. There's a distinct contrast between this and chapter 7, verse 37, which uh, speaks... Of him on the feast, the last day of the feast. It says, on the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. Here we see him humbly sitting and teaching. And so there is that distinct contrast from the water of life and the light of the world to a humble teacher sitting and teaching to those who would listen. It was during his teaching that an interruption took place. And it was interrupted. He was interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees who had brought to him a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. This is where we see the wisdom of Jesus take hold in this story. The Jews created a disturbance. They were really good at doing this, especially when Jesus was teaching uh, some truth about who he was or some truth about God the Father or or God's plan or, uh, or with the gospel. They were good at interrupting him because Satan always wants to interrupt the truth of God in some way. He's always seeking to divert the attention from what God says as truth to something else. And so it says in verse 53, I mean in, uh, excuse me, in verse uh, 3, it says that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So they brought into the temple where Jesus was teaching a woman caught in the act of adultery. This may have been the temple police who had actually arrested this woman and brought her to the Pharisees. And so regardless of how she came, the Pharisees got hold of her. And now she is in the Lord's presence 
and the crowd of people that are listening to him. And she is placed between him and the crowd. I can only imagine how the woman must have felt. She was no doubt, she no doubt was a married woman by the word, use of the word moixia, which is the Greek, a Greek word that speaks of a person who commits adultery as opposed to one who, who's just simply involved in sexual immorality or fornication. This woman was married and she was committing adultery against her husband and against the Lord. Each time this word is used, it differs from sexual immorality. Though adultery falls into that category, it has its own distinct meaning. Think of the shame and humiliation that she is experiencing. Not to mention the fear of punishment that could be hers, which, is, which was stoning. I want you to notice the word brought, because this word, this word paints a little bit of a picture for us on how she was introduced to Christ and brought into the midst of this group of people he was teaching. It means to take, the word brought means to take hold of, to lead somebody somewhere. <clears throat> the picture is that if the police, the temple police, brought this woman to the Pharisees, the Pharisees grabbed hold of her and they literally dragged her into the presence of the Lord in the temple. I can, I can almost envision them pushing her down to the ground. There's not a single doubt that when she was brought in to the Pharisees, that they would have seen her as a tool, an opportunity to catch Jesus out and accuse him in some way. For this was always their desire. This certainly was the case, for, uh, for uh, otherwise they would have assembled the Sanhedrin and they would have tried her as an adulteress. There are other things that enter in here as well. The Pharisees were known for their strict adherence to the Mosaic Law. They always had been hostile to Jesus, <clears throat> with the exception of Nicodemus, who on several occasions uh, seems to at least bring some sort of defense uh, to bear for, for Jesus. Later on, some of the Pharisees would believe in him, but most notable of the Pharisees that believed was Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Not many of the others, it says, actually believed in him unto salvation. So, they are now his enemies, and so they push through the crowd until she is right in front of Jesus with the crowd staring at her. We come to verses 4 and 5. We see them accuse the woman. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? 
Verse 6 confirms the suspicion of why they said this. For they were said this to test him so they might have some charge to bring against him. Well, what were the, the charges? Well, we're going to look at that here in just a moment. But the law did have a great deal to say about adultery. In fact, the seventh commandment forbids adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says that adultery is punishable by death. Listen to what it says and see if you can catch what's missing. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now from the standpoint of the law, the Pharisees were right in saying that this woman deserved to die. But where's the man? He's not mentioned. Only the only... only that he is involved in the act of adultery but with her, but she is the focal point. So why wasn't the man involved brought to the Pharisees as well? The reason was that they were trying to trap Jesus and the woman was the best tool to do that. It would, it would bring more sympathy from the people. See, they, they really didn't care about justice under the law. Because if they had, they would have assembled the Sanhedrin and they would have tried this woman and the man in their court before it was ever brought to Jesus and he would probably not have even been involved in it at all. But they wanted to catch him in something that they could condemn him. And this was a common act, common tact of the religious leadership of that day. In fact, I've listed a bunch of scriptures there. I'll just give you a couple. Matthew 12:10, and a man, <clears throat> and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" So they might accuse him. Mark chapter 8, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Luke chapter 11, verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. But they were dealing... They were dealing with the wisdom from heaven. And so that brings us to the third part of this. And that is the incrimination of Jesus. We've looked at His, we've looked at his uh, meekness. We've looked at His wisdom. Now we see His incrimination. That is the incrimination of sin. Look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
So the Pharisees cite the law. According to the law of Moses, this woman deserves to die. The law says we should stone her. What do you say? In essence, what is your opinion? What do you think about this? They think they've got him between a rock and a hard place. It's interesting the way that this is written. Because the word you, what do you say, is in the emphatic place in the sentence. So they're saying it's, it's like this woman was taken in adultery and the law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? With their high and mighty attitude. There is a tone. This is just another. There was a tone that this was just another test to find something to get, call him out on. William Hendrickson comments on this. Their purpose clearly was this. To cause Jesus to give an answer which would be in violation of the law of Moses. Next, to place this as an official charge against him, then on the basis of the charge to have him condemned by the Sanhedrin at an official session, and finally, by branding him as a transgressor to destroy his influence with the people. They wanted to discredit him with the people because they were losing ground. You remember when he rode into Jerusalem? What did they say? If he keeps this up, all the people are going to be flocking to him and we will lose our place and our living. See, that's what they were concerned with. They were concerned with themselves. They didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about the law. They just wanted Jesus out of the way so that they could have what they wanted. It's no different today. People are still rejecting Christ, still, still trampling Him under their feet because they want what they want and they don't want what God wants. They thought as many, they had many times before that they had Him cornered and that there was no way that He could get out of this. But now notice what He did. So, what, so if that's true, what is the difficulty here? Well, get a little background. Rome was in control of the known world at that time. And Roman law had been imposed upon Judea. And so every, everyone in Judea had to, had to abide by Roman law. And in Roman law, the... Punishment for adultery was lessened in severity. The Pharisees knew this, for they had sold themselves out to Rome to do its bidding. So, here, here's the two scenarios. If Jesus said that the woman should be punished according to the law and immediately executed, then the Jews would have a legal charge of 
sedition to bring to the governor against him because they didn't have the right to put anybody to death. Only Rome had that right. That's why you see them taking Jesus finally in the end to Pilate. This was under Rome's power. So he would be instigating an execution in defiance of Roman authority, not to mention how this would appear that he had no compassion on the woman. That's number one. That's the rock. The hard place is if he objected to the punishment, then he would be opposing the law of Moses and that would discredit him in the eyes of the people as Messiah for not upholding the law. The real problem here is how does divine justice and mercy harmonize? How can he be just And at the same time, show mercy. Because the act has been done. It's been, she's caught red-handed. God's law is holy and just. It is righteous and good. The law knows nothing about mercy and compassion. There's no mercy or compassion in the law of God. Only condemnation for those who break its law. This woman had broken the law. So how could he have mercy upon her? James chapter 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all. Of all the law. If you've broken one commandment, you've broken it all. So how can God show mercy and forgive sinners without violating his own law? The answer is through the person of God's Son, whose death fully satisfied God's justice and and the demands of the law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, if you would, please, very quickly. Let's just follow that theme along just a few verses. Romans 3, verse 25, 26. Speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is how God is able to be absolutely just so that no one can say, God, you are unjust. You've made an unjust verdict because the actual the actual way God shows mercy is by the righteousness of His Son imputed to those who believe by faith. Verse, verse uh, 24 and 25. 
And they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says essentially the same thing. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He brings us to God. It's Him, His blood that is the payment that God, can, that God gave so that God could be absolutely just and at the same time show mercy to sinners. Jesus is the one who harmonizes justice and mercy. The anticipation of what Jesus would say is heightened. I have not heightened. It's actually heightened here. And there's a sense of breathlessness in the temple courtyard. I mean, what is he going to do? They're, they're asking him a very difficult question. How's he going to respond? People are waiting. I bet you couldn't hear anything. It was so quiet. All eyes are on him, waiting for his answer. And the woman, she's terrified, humiliated, gripped with fear. For her life hangs on what he says next. And for those few moments, he just simply sat there, didn't say anything, just doodling on the ground, writing with his finger in the dust. It says he bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. The word wrote is an interesting word. This is why meanings, word meanings are so important. Because the word wrote means to communicate or express thought by writing. To communicate. He was trying to communicate to these wicked Pharisees by writing on the ground. I'm convinced it wasn't just doodling with his finger. I think he was writing something specific. Now, what did he write? Well, I don't know what he wrote, and neither do you. But there's been lots of different ideas of what Jesus might have written. First of all, he, some say he wrote down the names and the sins of all the men who had brought this woman to him. In the dirt. Wow, that'd be, that'd get your attention. Some say that he wrote a word of warning that was aimed at the scribes and Pharisees. Others say he just doodled as one does daydreaming, showing that he was simply not interested in such questions as these. For his purpose in coming into the world was not to judge but to save. That would be true. Although, he is the judge as well. Jesus, some say that he was at a loss of words. And I don't, I don't buy that at all. Jesus was never at a loss of words. The Lord has not been pleased to give us specifics of what, or who, to whom, or why he wrote as he did. But one thing is certain. 
This story speaks volumes about the depths of human depravity. Although not so much about the woman's depravity, but that of the Jews. Oh, she, she had committed a sin. She had broken the law, for sure. But so had they. But in their self-righteousness, they make things worse for themselves by being self-righteous. These men are men with murder in their hearts who were willing to let this woman be brutalized and even killed just to serve their own sinful desires and carry out this perverse plot against Jesus. It should not... It should not surprise us that men will go to any length to get what they want. This is the problem with our political system. Because if you get voted into federal office, you've got it made. And anybody who tries to disrupt that power and that money that comes with it, become an enemy of them. It's still going on today. But this is worse because this is the Son of God who has never done anything except be kind to people and feed people who were hungry and heal people who were diseased and taught people the truth. So they kept on asking him. They kept on needling him for an answer. So he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's taking a big chance, isn't it? Because in our world, we would think there would surely be one of them that would be so bold as to do that. But you see, they feared the Romans. If they threw stones at her and killed her, then the Roman law would come down on them. So they keep on asking him. And so then he knelt down and continued to write in the dirt. Now, I, I really think that this, at this point there's some silence. And they're watching him as he writes. And these people, as the silence builds, maybe they're starting to read what he wrote and thinking about the weight of their own sin even even though their hearts are so hard. I personally think, without ample proof, I think Jesus wrote in the sand the sins of those who were there, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. And when they saw the list of sins, they began to depart. Because what he was saying about them was true. Now, I don't know. I can't be dogmatic about that. But they started departing from the oldest to the youngest until they were all gone. Why didn't they continue to argue with him? Maybe it's because they had no more argument left. He has exposed them. And the crowd is seeing 
that he's exposed them. Of course, the crowd who were there when he began to teach are still there. But all of her accusers are now gone, slinking away one by one. And this brings us to verses 10 and 11 and the forgiveness of Jesus. Finally, standing face to face, maybe possibly this woman is still on the ground. I can't imagine her standing. But Jesus is has knelt down and he's writing her in the ground. So maybe he's knelt down too and he's looking at her. And he says to her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where are all your accusers? He didn't deny her guilt. She was guilty. But he gave her a tone of gentle, respectful reassurance. Where are the people that wanted you dead for your sin? For he knew that that was not the reason they had brought her in the first place. Now, isn't that exactly what he does for us? For he knows that we were guilty. But he never, he never brings our guilt up to us. Because he has paid the price to redeem us from that guilt. And there will never be another word said to us about our sin past, present, or future, when we stand before Him. Not one word. That is the great encouragement. For He has saved us to the uttermost because we came to God by, through Him. This is... In perfect keeping with John 3.17, which states that he didn't enter the world to condemn. And Luke 12.14, showing that he was not here to be an arbiter of judicial disputes and judgments. He He did not come to defend or to judge people. He came to save them. He is now the arbiter. He is now the one who stands in our defense. That's not why he came originally. And so, she said, no one is here, Lord, condemning me. No, I don't have any accusers. Now, it's important to note that she called him Lord. That gives us an indication of her heart. Somewhere in in the midst of all of this, she sees her sin and she recognizes him as the true Messiah and calls him by his real title, Lord, his proper title. He made the statement that all of us want to hear. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm not going to condemn you. 
When we stand before the Lord Jesus, when he returns, this is what he'll say. I don't condemn you. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Forgiveness, however, does not imply a license to sin. Because he said, I don't condemn you, does not mean that she can now go out and live the same kind of life that she lived before. Because that is not what salvation means. When Jesus forgives an individual, he forgives them forever. But he demands that their life show that forgiveness He says to her, go and stop sinning. Stop this sinful lifestyle. You know the good part about that is? We would have no power to do that on our own. But He has given us His Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and He abides in us and He gives us the power to say no to sin. I'm not going to continue that kind of lifestyle. I'm not going to do that. And when we find ourselves in sin, He gives us the, the ability to come and confess that we have and forgives us for our unrighteous acts. Gerald Borchardt writes, Jesus' verdict, neither do I condemn, however, was not rendered as a simple acquittal or non-condemnation. The verdict was, in fact, a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently. To sin no more. The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life. The turning away from sin. That's why when people say to me, well, if I become a Christian, if I do what you say I need to do, I, I, can't, I have to quit partying and drinking, getting drunk and taking drugs and, and uh, you know, carousing and, and, and living together without being married. I have to, I have to do all, stop all those things. Yes, you do. Or you deny what you say you have. Now Christians, Christians sin and they, they trip up and they make, they make uh, what we would call mistakes, but it's actually sin. We sin, but when we do, it, it kills us inside because we've sinned against God. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. And that's what happens when you trust Christ. He forgives you of your sins. You start life anew. You have a new life, a new new heart, a new want, a new desire. Not to live for yourself like you did all those years before, but now to live for Christ. Whether you're in public or whether you're in private. Remember Paul's inspired words from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that God's grace might abound? 
No, let it never be said. By no means. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? See, that's not our lifestyle anymore. We've been changed. We've been changed from the inside out. It's not an external trying to keep rules and regulations. It's a change of heart. And when Christ comes in and He cleanses us from our sin, all of that comes outward and things begin to change in our life. And we begin to now live for righteousness and the fruit of God's Spirit is shown in our lives rather than the fruit of the former life, which was sin and disobedience to God. Has God done that work in your life? This woman became a child of God that day. I'm convinced of it. And we have the record of her story and Christ's story of forgiveness for us today. May God use it to teach us, to remind us that He once said to us, I don't condemn you, now go and stop sinning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the day of worship You have given us. We pray that we would abide by this Word. And Lord, we, we fail so often to live according to what You say here. But we know that You have saved us and that You have given us of Your Spirit and that it is through the Spirit and through the Word of God that we can live this life and though we might get our feet dirty walking in this muck and mire down here, you are constantly washing us, clean, cleaning us up so that you might be glorified for your work in us. It's not us, it's you. And so I pray that each one of us here that know you, that love you and that follow you would remember these things as we go from day to day throughout this next week and month and year until the day that you come and take us home to be with you and we see you face to face and we're just like you in sinless perfection with a new body that is not capable of sinning anymore. We thank you for all this and the promises that you've given us. And we we count on them. We we want to take them to the bank for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.